The paper, I think, makes a lot of compelling arguments, um, which I won't rehearse uh, for you since Will has already laid out a lot of them. Um, but because the structure of the paper first takes us through Madison's understanding of liquidation to illuminate the features that uh, the paper says are the primary features of liquidation, including indeterminacy, um, a course of practice, and settlement, um, and then it proceeds to treat the broader relevance of liquidation, both at the founding era and today. I'm going to try to first make a couple of comments on the treatment of Madison, um, and then move to the paper's conclusions about liquidation. So um, with respect to the Madison section, which I, I think also Will's final comments uh, make even more important since Madison was kind of the primary uh, representative of a theory of liquidation at this moment. Um, I think the, the main comment that I would make um, might also be taken as a kind of friendly amendment to the piece. Um, it's, and it's perhaps because I've been reading recently Mary Builder's book, um, Madison's Hand, uh, which emphasizes Madison's revisionist tendencies with respect to his notes on the convention as well as his efforts to gloss uh, his earlier actions in light of later uh, views. Um, I was a little surprised that um, Will first uh, considers Madison's views on liquidation in toto before moving on to the specific episodes regarding the bank and the spending power. Um, and so then in looking kind of at the sources for those uh, general views, almost all of the letters and other documents that are um, cited in the section date from 1819 or later, um, rather than from the founding period. So uh, you know, perhaps they themselves then represent uh, the liquidation of Madison's views on liquidation. Um, but I think it might benefit the paper to actually treat them in a chronological order rather than um, simultaneously. So while I think that the evidence that um, Will adduces demonstrates very well Madison's understanding of a course of practice as conferring a quasi-binding justification for particular interpretations, um, and also this account of the course of practice as a kind of precedent, um, I, was all, I was slightly less convinced that it supports the other two components that the paper posits for liquidation. First, the indeterminacy of constitutional text, and then second, settlement, at least on certain meanings of those terms. And I think what I really want to press is which meanings of the terms does it support versus not. Um, and here, I would like to just quote at a little bit of length from Madison's 1831 letter to Ingersoll, um, the one where he compares um, legislative precedent with judicial precedent. So Madison writes, and why are judicial precedents when formed on due discussion and consideration and deliberately sanctioned by reviews and repetitions regarded as a binding influence or rather of authoritative force in settling the meaning of a law? It must be answered first because it is a reasonable and established axiom that the good of society requires that the rules of conduct of its members should be certain and known which would not be the case if any judge disregarding the decisions of his predecessor should vary the rule of law according to his individual interpretation of it. Two, second, because an exposition of the law publicly made and repeatedly confirmed by the constituted authority carries with it by fair inference the sanction of those who, having made the law through their legislative organ, appear under such circumstances to have determined its meaning through their judiciary organ. 
But it is said that the legislator, having sworn to support the Constitution, must support it in his own construction of it. We might get into the oath uh, theorists here. Uh, however different from that put on it by his predecessors, or whatever be the consequences of the construction. And is not the judge under the same oath to support the law? Yet has it ever been supposed that he was required or at liberty to disregard all precedents, however solemnly repeated and regularly observed? And by giving effect to his own abstract and individual opinions to disturb the established course of practice in the business of the community. Has the wisest and most conscientious judge ever scrupled to acquiesce in decisions in which he has been overruled by the mature opinions of the majority of his colleagues? Um, so, I. <clears throat> And then he finally continues, um, there is in fact in a common understanding a necessity of regarding a course of practice um, in, the uh, oh, um, in the light of a legal rule of interpreting a law um, and there is a like necessity of considering it a constitutional rule of interpreting a constitution. So I want to pull out a couple of elements that I think are very important to Madison's account here. Um, so first of all, he emphasizes that rules must be certain and known. Um, then he also suggests that they should be sanctioned by the legislature's acquiescence, if not by its affirmative approval. And then finally, he places weight on the importance of an individual, including individual judges, going along with other colleagues' opinions. So to me, this raises the possibility that Madison might not have thought the Constitution unclear about the scope of congressional power to create a bank in the first instance, but could see a rationale later on for accepting alternative interpretations of the Constitution once these had arisen. So this might be a kind of indeterminacy, but not one based on vagueness or ambiguity recognized by any particular interpreter, but instead about a kind of thoroughgoing disagreement respecting the real meaning of the constitutional text. So Madison, un under this account, would then recognize the disagreement and subsequently uh, express a sense of deference to an emerging consensus that was different than his view of the real meaning of constitutional text. I also wasn't left certain by the evidence that Madison would have adopted a strong rather than a weak position on settlement. Certainly this passage and other writings suggest the importance for Madison of the reliance interests of the populace on judicial and legislative precedent. However, if that precedent then began to switch back to a different interpretation, establishing its own set of newly settled practices, would he really advocate remaining with the old precedents or would he urge adoption of the new set of precedents? What I was even more struck by in Madison's letter to Ingersoll um, are the echoes of a theory of the common law along the lines articulated by someone like Sir Matthew Hale in the late 17th century in his History of the Common Law. Um, which theory emphasized the need for a predictable, though not inflexible, uh, common law, as well as the importance of popular acceptance of that law. And Hale was writing after having you know, participated both in uh, the rule of law pre-English Revolution, then during the reign of Cromwell, and then also uh, on the Restoration. So he had a kind of faith in law and the kind of acceptance of law even under transitional uh, regimes. So <clears throat> here I, I would thoroughly agree with the paper's argument that a Madisonian notion of liquidation lends support to the return of a historical conception of precedent which uh, I think is related to the common law. <clears throat> I also completely agree with the argument made in the later sections of the paper that this historical conception diverges significantly from the notion of stare decisis that we're familiar with 
and certainly does not involve reliance on a single precedent as compelling. Yet here I do wonder whether our contemporary visions of precedent might in fact uh, also accommodate at least some of the older notion as well. Certainly a theory of precedent like Dworkin's chain novel um, doesn't exactly suggest the stare decisis model, but instead a change that happens almost imperceptibly, uh, imperceptibly but can be seen retrospectively as a transformation. Also, when deciding to revise or overrule its earlier decisions, the court often cites to the fact that subsequent cases have not been consistent with the earlier case's reasoning, even if they pay lip service to the precedent. Finally, and I just want to end on this since we're, I'm running out of time, um, I was very curious about the references to democracy in the second half of Will's paper. So on page 30, he suggests that it um, would be more democratic to return to the earlier vision of precedent and then on page 33 that, quote, liquidation provides a particularly democratic and structured way to harness this kind of traditionalism in constitutional law. So what vision of democracy undergirds these assertions? To my ear, it sounds very different from many justifications for originalist interpretation of the Constitution, which often rely on the idea that the Constitution was a democratically ad adopted text that should be adhered to in its original meaning precisely because of such democratic ratification. Here, acceptation by other branches and by the people seems instead to be the underpinnings of democracy. To me, this sounds a little bit more like Hale's justification uh, for a kind of English constitutional scheme than the social <coughs> contractarian basis that often is taken as a justification for originalism. So uh, with that, I want to open up to questions, and thank you so much for Will. Will, would you like to respond? Uh, just a couple things. So I think all points well taken. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I should have said, uh, or I should admit, that there is a, an artificiality in the paper's current construction of Madison, uh, treating sort of, it's almost a synthetic uh, assembly of the idea of liquidation out of all of his writings over time. Uh, that does, I do think it is true in the, in the historian's fight about sort of was James Madison inconsistent or was he ultimately the same guy all along? Uh, everything I've read of, that he wrote has convinced me he was the same guy all along, but I don't currently make that uh, claim, uh, I don't sort of currently make that explicit at all. I think that's, that's totally fair. Um, I, similarly, so the indeterminacy point, I think it's right that there are various letters that sound heavily in precedent where we wouldn't now think of uh, a requirement of ambiguity or indeterminacy before precedent settles. But then there are other places where he sa says, talking about the same controversies like the bank, no, no, don't worry, I'm not saying that it can resolve everything, there has to be an indeterminacy. So if, if you take the view that all these things should be read together, that's sort of where this comes out of, but that's, that's doing a lot of work. Uh, I have to think more about this question of what happens when sort of there's a settled practice and it starts to unsettle. That's one of the things I start wrestling with at the end of the paper, and, and how would you think about that? But here's, here's at least one piece of evidence to suggest that sometimes when there's a settled practice and it's started to unsettle, Madison would say, still stick with the settled practice. And that is 1836, a letter he gets uh, from a group of people inviting him to a dinner in Cincinnati celebrating the expiration of the charter of the National Bank. It's after Jackson's veto, after Jackson has resisted what Madison thought was a compelling liquidation about the constitution of the bank, and Madison writes back uh, that he can't come. Uh, because retaining, as I do, my conviction uh, that in expounding the Constitution in the case of the bank, the decision of the nation had been sufficiently manifested to overrule individual opinions. And he goes on and on. But basically he says, look, I still think the bank was, was liquidated as constitutional, and so I can't come to your party. Um, <laughs> <celebrating> <laughs> the <end of> the bank. 
that's at least suggests there's, there's some, that's supposed to do some work in stopping against slippage or disruption of settled practice. Now, how far does that go? What would he have thought if he'd been you know, around and, you know, 30 years later? I don't know, but that's at least one point. Uh, I know that we often have a hard time getting through all the questions, so I will just say, if you promise to make your questions brief, I'll promise to make my answers brief. Mm -hmm. oh.